back to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak with some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Alan Sheen, one of the founders of Dalton Street Capital. Uh, Alan's been a very successful manager of money in the markets for a number of years. His career spanned head of proprietary trading with Credit Suisse, uh, also chief investment officer with Challenge and also investment position with AMP. Uh, Alan's incredibly intelligent person, you'll see, rather unique background into the industry and also uh, quite a different, unique way of investing money uh, that has really performed outstandingly well. Since the fund's been running, they've had a compound annual growth rate of 19.9% per annum. If you've got any feedback, as always, please email that through to me. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. I think you'll agree that Alan's a really interesting guy. Alan Sheen, welcome Inside the Rope. Thank you. Alan, if you want to start off by maybe giving us a a bit of insight to your background and what, what drew you to investing? Mm, yeah, sure. It's an interesting uh, trip uh, and journey that most fund managers make. I was a kid growing up in outback town in New South Wales. I was pretty good at uh, maths and science, so uh, I took my off, myself off to the city and uh, studied engineering. Ended up spending eight years in uh, aeronautical engineering and gas turbine research and development. And um, you know, when people hear that, they think, oh, okay, well, see, so you're, you're working on jet engines trying to make them go faster, but actually what you're trying to do is actually make sure they don't stop first and foremost. And if they so happen to go faster as a intended consequence of that process, that's a really good outcome. So you know, what I'm doing now, 25 years later, is actually probably no different to what I was doing in research and development for jet engines. I engineer clients' portfolios to make sure they don't stop, i.e. lose money for the client. And as an intended consequence, if we make money out of that, it's a, a nice outcome for the client. And we've managed to make money for clients for the last 21 years. Fantastic. And and how so how did you make the transition from aeronautical engineering in that area to to uh, finance and advising and running your own fund? Mm. Well, sometimes I think, uh, as most of us know, that uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I had a friend whose father ran a family office in the US and uh, he took us both on as analysts without any experience, just engineering degrees, to come and work for him. And this family office, when we joined, had about 300 million under management, based in the US. And uh, when I left, uh, eight years later, it had a little bit over a billion dollars in funds under management. So I can't claim responsibility for all of it, but I was at least standing close by when it happened. And tell me about the style of how you manage money. Uh, the first two years of my career, I had the same style as most of the people in the market. I was a fundamental analyst. I used to guess forward one and two year earnings. I used to go and talk to company CEOs and CFOs and do site visits and talk to brokers and the natural thing that most people think that you do as a fund manager. And about two years into my career, I resigned and was going to go back to engineering because I couldn't believe this is how people manage money. Uh, but fortunately, I was completing a Bachelor of Mathematics at the time, and uh, I met a couple of guys who were these things called quants, who were on one of my courses, and I started talking to them, and as soon as they explained to me that they use maths and science to construct portfolios, and I thought, well, I'm an engineer, I'm doing maths, I have a rough idea how to use a calculator, that makes sense to me, rather than listening to a CEO tell me how wonderful he was in the company. So I rescinded my uh, resignation letter, and fortunately I was friends with the the firm that I worked with, and uh, they allowed me to take on this thing called quant investing. And uh, that was back in 96. 
and ever since, uh, it's all been uh, you know, engineering portfolios based on maths and science. So I think most people understand fundamental investing. They might think of people like Warren Buffett and you know trying to work out the intrinsic value of a company based on its future cash flows and then trying to find these gems where they're mispriced and buying them and holding on to them until the market wakes up and realizes they're worth a lot more. Mm. Um, quant investing, give, give us an example of how that works or um, you know where you can, where you think the listeners would understand. Mm, sure. Well, the interesting thing about Warren Buffett, he is one of the best known and most successful uh, fundamental investors. But the unusual thing is his teacher, who quite literally wrote the book on investing, a book in 1934, written by um, Graham and Dodd, so Ben Graham and David mm -hmm. Dodd, called Security Analysis. And uh, there was a subsequent uh, book to that called The Intelligent Investor, which Ben Graham wrote by himself. And in the second to last chapter, Ben Graham actually outs himself as a quant. So he has nine rules of investing, but uh, in the second last chapter, he says, well, you can either do all nine or just do three, and you'll get the same outcome with a lot less work, and these are just simple quantitative factors. So these are factors of regressive 10-year PEs, so you just look at the last uh, 10 years EPS, so earnings per share, um, you know, take the average of that number and divide it by the current share price, and that gives you a different PE to what people look at these days in a fundamental point of view, because fundamental investing is all about what we facetiously say, guessing. Because that's what they do. They just guess what a number will be in the future and extrapolate that forward. Uh, another aspect is you know, we look at dividend yields, um, and that's a regressive again. So we only look at what the company's done, what, not what we can guess they'll do. And then the final factor is uh, earnings yield. So the combination of 10-year regressive numbers and one-year regressive numbers, it's quite amazing how powerful a tool that is. So we have no need to speak to companies or even know what the company does. Uh, we only know them as a ticker symbol. What sort of conditions do you need or want? So when you wake up in the morning, what are you wishing for that makes your performance better than it otherwise would be? Uh, we, I guess we don't take any view or have any feeling towards the market. I think, as a lot of people will say, I'm the most boring barbecue guest because people here, oh, there's, there's Alan, he runs a hedge fund and people are very interested in talking to me about where the Aussie dollar going, is going or where the market's going. And I always say, look, I can I can tell you where I think the market's going. I think you know the ASX will be up you know, 10 you know, maybe 10 uh, points this year, plus or minus 500 points. <laughs> because that's telling the story. That's not, you know, I'm not trying to entertain them by guessing exactly where it will be. Uh, we just need uh, the market to continue as an orderly market for the underlying equity portfolio that we run. And over the course of our investment horizon, which is five years, uh, we've consistently outperformed the index by you know, sort of six or 7% per annum. And all we need to do is those stocks that we buy, um, we just need the market to recognise that uh, these are good value, which sometimes it can take a little while, sometimes it can happen straight away. But we just need orderly markets. Um, we're the same as any other investor, whether it's value, growth, fundamental or quant, uh, we will struggle in times of crashes as well. And that's why we run a short-term trading strategy over the top of our portfolio. A short-term tra trading strategy. Elaborate a little bit on that for our listeners. So the way this fund's developed is we run an underlying equity portfolio. We run somewhere between 25 and 50 stocks. And essentially that's a la what I'd classify as a lazy portfolio. And the best thing that you have with a portfolio is inventory. 
and brokers want inventory because they want to use it and they want to you know, hand it off to other people so they can short sell and run other hedge funds. Uh, but what we use, we use our inventory as collateral to trade the futures markets. So when you say inventory, the companies that you own, the positions? Yeah, the positions. So if we have a $100 million fund, that gives us $100 million worth of inventory that we can use as collateral to then trade a managed future strategy. So we run on top of our equity portfolio another short-term trading strategy where we will enter managed futures positions at the commencement of the day and exit them at the end of the day. So overnight, you still only have your equity portfolio, but during the day for any large market movements, we can capture those market movements through futures positions. And you know, the interesting thing is the futures side is actually uncorrelated to the equity side in normal market conditions and then they become negatively correlated in extreme market conditions. So extreme uh, high volatility where the market's normally crashing or extreme low volatility like we've experienced in the last three years. And they just uh, uh, offer a really good trade-off and that's what gives you an absolute return and hence why well, I've had 21 years of positive performance. So let's just back up a little bit there. You use the term we and I assume you're talking about Dalton Street Capital. Can you talk us about how you came to form that and why? Hmm. And then also the 21 years of performance, how that fits in into that picture. Hmm. So I've been managing money for 21 years, started off <coughs> at the family office that I spoke about and then moved into more of the institutional world, I guess, for a better description. So I was a senior portfolio manager at AMP Capital, managing a $9 billion book. Uh, I was the chief investment officer at Challenger, running a $16 billion book. Um, but I was always running this underlying strategy throughout all those, uh, through all those jobs. And then in the last year, in 2010, I joined a company called Credit Suisse, which most people know, and they wanted people to manage their own balance sheet. So they had quite a bit of lazy capital, and I was brought in to manage that balance sheet. And there, I met the head of equities, Nick Selva-Ratnam, and uh, he and I thought it was a great opportunity to develop a fund that creates an absolute return and uh, has all the aspects uh, of you know, the non-correlation and the uncorrelation and spinning off capital. Uh, we thought it'd be a great uh, product to, to sell to clients. And uh, we did that in uh, 2016, so we're two years into the journey. Uh, so head of equities, Credit Suisse, head of proprietary trading, who I was. We took our first draft choice of a quant analyst with us. And um, we've, we've had a really good start to the business. We're the top performing managed futures manager in the world uh, for 12 months to the end of January and 18 months to the end of January. So uh, yeah, we've had a little bit of luck at the start and it's going quite well. Uh, we now have a a team of four of us in the investment team. Interestingly enough, uh, people ask us about our background. So you have an engineer, which is myself. Nick Sel Ratman's a civil engineer. Um, our first, first draft choice, RG, was a computer scientist, and we've just recruited a, a new uh, member to the team, and she's just finished her Master's of Physics. So you can see we're more of a research organisation than a finance firm. And you're rolling out returns at around, historically, the, in, in the Dalton Street Fund at 19.9% .9 per annum, I think. Yeah. Is that reasonable to expect that to keep going or you know, where, where would you set the expectation for this type of strategy? Uh, we don't, again, like we don't forecast markets, we don't forecast returns. <coughs> so over the last 21 years, we've had returns somewhere between 3% and 77%. So based on history, you know, we'll probably fall somewhere in between those numbers. I know that's not the answer you want, but that's, and, and, that's and the answer we give. Let me reposition. What's, what's the objective of the fund? Our objective is absolute returns over rolling three-year periods. So we don't believe in, in forecasting anything because what we find is our algorithms are based on behavioural 
you know, behavioural biases. And people have heard of neural networks and AI and all these buzzwords, but it's really just pattern recognition, that's all it is. And that's what we rely on. So we don't forecast anything including the returns. So what we get at the end of the year is what falls out the bottom of the portfolio. So when you say this is an algorithm, is this a piece of software? Is this a black box? Uh, is this a computer program that you've written yourself? Mm. What, what, what is this? Yeah, always, uh, we, we do get described as a black box manager a lot of the time. And, and I understand why they describe us as, as a black box because people realise it's based on maths. And a lot of people find maths scary and intimidating. And um, so it's easier for them to placate their own ego and call us a black box. So I guess as long as they call a fundamental manager a crystal ball gazer, I'm okay with that. Um, so it's, it's yeah, an algorithm. People get a bit excited when they hear algorithm, but all an algorithm is is a set of rules. And if you think of Pythagoras' theorem that we all learnt at school, mm. you know, that's been around for thousands of years. So these scary algorithms have been with us for a long, long time. It's just that people don't have the interest, and some may say rightly so, to dig down and develop their own algorithm. So our algorithm is a, is a software or coding uh, element that I uh, started a number of years ago. And what, what could go wrong? You know, what, what, what would be your worst nightmare uh, for the strategy and or the fund? So the worst days that we've had is when you have an unexpected event. So one of our worst days was uh, the day after the Fukushima earthquake. So we rely on orderly markets, we rely on um, backward looking data, so the previous day's data or the previous 10 years data. So when you have an, an event like uh, the Fukushima earthquake and then it was the subsequent, subsequent partial nuclear meltdown, I think markets dropped 6 or 7% and, and we went with them because um, you know, we were positioned long, long, so long in the equities and long in the future. So we took a you know, sort of 7 or 8% hit on that day. But then by the same token, yeah, it's just luck whether you get that way or not. When they'd um, basically unpegged the Swiss franc a number of years ago, we were just lucky to be on the right side of that and we made, I think, 7 or 8% on the upside that day. And yeah, so it swings and roundabouts. It's just unpredictable events like a, you know, a, I guess, a natural disaster, government intervention or central bank intervention. Otherwise, um, we just operate in an orderly manner each day. And is the strategy constrained? You'll hear a lot of managers talk about, well, I'm in the small cap space, so you know, in the Australian market, I need three to 500 million. Um, <clears throat> for the type of positions you're trying to exit or enter or execute that strategy, do you, do you have a feeling for constraints? Or? Yeah, we monitor it very closely because we're constrained by the futures market, not the equity market. So when you think about it, if we have a $100 million um, portfolio mandate, we turn over 200 million of that a day. So we in and out the whole portfolio in one day. So it's very important for us to source liquidity in the markets. So historically, around the 2006 to 2008 era, where there are lots of prop desks, proprietary trading desks at banks, people were trading quite extensively. Um, this is a strategy we were running at sort of one and a half billion dollars. These days, we have a hard capacity limit of $500 million. So quite easy, you can, everyone can do the maths on that. The volumes in the futures markets when we trade are a third of what they were pre-GFC and during the GFC. If that picks up over time, we'll probably you know, um, run the fund up a little bit larger or if they keep dropping off, we'll run it a little bit smaller. Notwithstanding, in theory, if we wanted to, we could run this strategy at three or $4 billion if we wanted to, but there's no way we would achieve those 20% annualized returns. And, and what's the, the, uh, what's the 
funds under management at the moment? Uh, funds under management, we're ticking along about $80 million and bringing in a, somewhere between sort of 10 to $15 million a month. So plenty of capacity. And, and what markets or indices are you trading? Yeah, so that? we focus purely on the Asian markets, not because we like them, it's because it's where this algorithm works. So we trade uh, Australia, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. So we hold equities across those six markets and we trade the futures over those indices of those six markets. And it's just because there is a behavioral bias between the US markets and the Asian markets that we are able to capitalize on, which it doesn't appear to see many people capitalizing on because the behaviors are not what you'd expect. It's a long-term pattern of behavior um, that we, we just, you know, we can't get away from. It's a behavior called anchoring. And, and is this far away from, you know, we wake up every morning, the first thing we do is check uh, Koshi or whoever else is gonna tell us what happened overnight in the US? Yeah, that's the thing. We're all trying to make more money than the next person, but we're all relying on the same data. So how on earth are you gonna make more money than the next person? The first thing we hear on the radio, TV, or morning meeting is what the US did overnight. And because the way our minds work, and because generally our minds are quite lazy, I mean, we, we rely on things like heuristics, for example, where mm -hmm. we take complex problems and trying to, you know, sort of dilute it down to very simple answers. So when we hear that, let's say the US was down 2% overnight, we anchor on that number, for better or worse, because essentially we're a little bit lazy. And then we will act and behave in the markets uh, that day based on that anchoring behavior. And what we do is we've written the algorithm to capitalize on that anchoring behavior. And this is the good thing about algorithms, um, is that you don't have to be right all the time. In fact, our algorithm is only right 56% of the time. 56? Yeah, and this is, what I tell, this is what I love telling my friends who are still engineers, I think, you know, if, I, if planes fall out of the sky, if you're not right, right, that's right. If I was running fifty-six percent, yeah, I certainly wouldn't be having holding down an engineering job very well. But yeah, you're you're in the uh, finance world, and you're a rock star for getting it right fifty-six percent of the time. It's quite extraordinary, and we're quite fortunate. Where not only do we get it right fifty-six percent of the time, the days we get it right, we make sixteen percent more than the days we get it wrong as well. So you're getting the benefit of a positive hit rate, for a better word and the benefit of a positive skew, i.e. making more money on the days you make money than the days you lose money. And so it's just that little bit every single day, and that's how you end up making outsized returns. So, Al, it sounds like you're a bit of a fan of Daniel Kahneman and moving fast and slow and the behavioural finance elements of that, and you build an algorithm that takes advantage of some of those missile anomalies, if you like. Hmm. Yeah, well, people have asked me, where did you come up with this idea? What's well, an unusual idea? We don't see too many other people doing something similar. And I'm quite honest when I say the, pe the people that I was reading at the time have nothing to do with finance. Uh, notwithstanding, Danny Kahneman and Amos Versky did win the Nobel Prize in economics, even though they're both psychologists. Uh, so I wasn't reading uh, Kahneman and Versky, or Versky and Kahneman as they used to call themselves back then. I was reading uh, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. Uh, which again, people think is quite unusual, but what I found in there, there was a schematic uh, on one page in there that shows the behavior of whether it's humans, birds, or anything else, and it shows that our behaviors don't really change over 10,000 year periods. We may look very different to how we started, 
but the behavior doesn't change. You know, we're still acting as though we're running around the African savannah 250,000 years ago. And I was reading another, uh, I guess, person that's, you know, that I guess Kahneman and Versky uh, refer to quite a bit, which is Phil Tetlock. And they're very much based around anchoring behaviors and uh, behavioral biases. And it's incredible how humans can't escape those. So what are you reading now? Uh, at the moment, I'm rereading uh, Security and Analysis. Uh, so I lead a very exciting life, as my wife says. Uh, that's a 725-page book, so the original 1934 edition. Wow. Uh, which is quite exciting for me. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I actually reread a lot of books as well. So I'm back to reading, rereading The Origin of Species. Um, and another book I'm actually reading is a, um, uh, I, I actually read a lot of fiction. As yes. well, people don't realise that there's a lot of non-fiction embedded in fiction. So there's a great book by Christopher Isherwood called A Single Man. Uh, this was made into a movie a number of years ago. People may know this, um, the, the title. But it just gives you a very good insight into the way people were thinking in the 1960s around the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you look at their behaviours there and you just go, OK, hang on. They're acting exactly the same way as we're acting now, as they were acting in the First World War, the Second World War, and you know previous wars back to the Civil World War, which is as far back as I've probably read as far as wars go. That's just a really good reference point as to go, no, I think I'll stick with what I'm doing. It seems their behaviours still haven't changed. Is all hard copy reading, or are you adapted to Audible or other things? Uh, no, I'm hard copy. Old there's, school. Yeah, there's something about just the tactility of a book. I, I do like that. And then, obviously, you put it up on the shelf as a trophy of something you've read. Changing tact a little bit, Al, this type of strategy, how, how do you see it fitting into a portfolio for a high net worth individual that's trying to build out a portfolio that's robust? Mm. Uh, another, I guess, answer people don't like is I give them at barbecues about when they ask me about markets is, is I don't have any opinion on how it should fit into a portfolio. Uh, that's not my job. My sole job is to make as much money as possible for the client. It is the financial advisor's job, like yours, mm -hmm. uh, is to figure out where it goes into a portfolio and how to blend it in. So I subscribe to the Sir John Templeton School of Thinking is my sole job is to make as much money as possible. You guys figure out where it sits. You, you just offered a nice <laughs> pad to that one outside the off stump and let it go through to the keeper. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I'm, I'm very much about um, you <coughs> stick to your skill set. As far as I'm concerned, I, I kind of facetiously say I don't have a lot of interest outside of, of my day job, and I don't. I remember telling someone I finally subscribed to Netflix, and they said, oh, great, what what was the first show you watched? Was it, you know, um, or House of Cards or, you know, all these different shows? Dirty Money, have you seen that? Dirty Money or you know, these sort of things? No, no, it was a, there was a, uh, a series on algorithms. And that's what I watched. A series <laughs> on <laughs> algorithms. Gee, Al, I have to take you out. I know. Oh, yeah, that's partying down for me. It'd be fair to say that most research houses and most, um, uh, I guess, advice firms would tend to put strategies like this in between somewhere between 5 and 20%. That, is that what you see? What we I'm see. I'm not asking you to endorse it. No, just, no, no. Yeah. absolutely. So, so we're seeing clients put us in the alternative basket, of which the allocation is somewhere between 5 and 20%. Uh, we have seen some firms place us in the equity basket. And I've asked them, well, what, what is your reason for doing that? And the reason they say is because we exhibit all the underlying returns of an equity portfolio in low volatility conditions, but we have the protection of the managed future strategy embedded in our portfolio. So therefore, their argument is, well, now I don't have to make the asset allocation decision anymore. So when equities start to have a rough run, as will ours, uh, our managed futures kick in. 
and we start generating the returns from managed futures. So for example, in 2008, where you know, you know, people were seeing you know, drops of 40, 50, 60% in their portfolios, our equity portfolio was down 40%, but our managed futures were up 100%. So our net return was 60% in 08, where most people were down 40%. So repeat that, the net performance? The net performance for our fund in 08 was positive return of 60%. Wow. Yes, so that's why people look at it and go, okay, this is great, I don't have to make an asset allocation decision here takes away the concept of timing in the market, which again, I'm not a believer of timing in the market. So you enjoy the equity market returns, but you enjoy the protection when the market collapses. And that's taken through the futures. Al, can you tell us a little bit about artificial intelligence? It's interesting. I, I constantly receive as many questions about artificial intelligence as I do about Bitcoin. And interestingly enough, this is probably the maybe the third or fourth AI boom that I know of, because neural network or artificial neural networks were invented back in the late 1940s by a psychologist in the US, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, and he developed the concept of you know, trying to come up with you know, our natural brains learning and putting it into a computer program. Um, yeah, so this has been around for what, going on to 80 years now, and uh, I don't know why the sudden excitement about it now. So yeah, third or fourth, I guess, boom. The last one we saw was in the 90s, where people were saying, you know, we're running these AI style of portfolios and they collapsed and most of them closed up shop. So I was a fervent, I guess, uh, dis disagree with them then and I am now because at the end of the day, uh, you know, AI isn't really what you think. I was using AI back in the late 80s as an aeronautical engineer and we could never ever, with the resources that we had, uh, come up with anything that was meaningful. Uh, I've spent 20 years now in the investment world trying to come up with what you'd call AI or artificial neural networks, and we can't find anything that's persistent. So I think it's like anything. It's like Bitcoin. It's, it's, a, it's a fad, but it just happens to be the third or fourth fad of uh, AI. Only in the area of investment management and investing or more broadly in society do you see that as a fad? I think... Or do you not subscribe to the, the fact that, you know, Moore's Law on chips and circuitry and it's becoming cheaper to, to power these things and they're becoming more and more powerful and that's exponential and it becomes a point where, you know, they start to have the processing grunt and software and storage and capability where it becomes meaningful. I try and think of things really simplistically. Yeah. So when it comes to AI, who has to program it? Human. The human has to program it. Sure. So you're limited by the human's capacity program it. These things aren't like we see in the movies where you know they'll rise Where up they learn they the, the point of singularity, right? That's right, exactly right. And then they rise up and kill us all. Where the machine becomes smarter and, and better than us. <laughs> exactly right. It can't become smarter than the person who's programmed it. It's, it's as simple as that. So that's why I think we'll struggle to see these AI type funds ever have any significant outperformance. How does that compare or contrast with, I think I might have read where you were quoted as saying, you know, it's 95% of the time where there's a, a crash on a plane, um, it's when the pilot's got his hand on the stick. Hmm. So how does that, is that, is that a correct quote first? And yeah. then secondly, how does that then play into where you're saying, well, hang on, it's not all about the automation? Yeah, the, the statistics are probably roughly about right, but I'm, I'm one of the few people who would hop on a pilotless plane. 
because I belong, feel safer with a computer running it rather than a human running it. Isn't that artificial intelligence? No, because again, a, so a person has programmed it. It's already it. programmed. Yeah, okay. so, so straight away, you have a terrain response system built into the, the computer there because we already know what the terrain is. And so some human just programs, we want to be 200 feet above the, whatever prevailing terrain is. And it yeah. just stays over that prevailing terrain. So you're speak, you're really talking about the the concept of the machine learning and progressing to learn from that in terms of artificial intelligence and investment as as, as you can't see that as working. Exactly right. So you think of a terrain response system. Uh, they don't add an extra foot of snow on the top of a uh, you know, <laughs> on, on top of a mountain every time they fly over it. Notwithstanding. The human can program that and say, okay, well, in March, we have an extra foot of snow on it. In, you know, in you know, September, there's a, you know, less than uh, you know, one foot less of snow. So that's how you program it. So there's not fly, the, the computer's not flying over and going, oh, that's right, yeah, so I'll just add a little bit more to it now. It's, it's, it's all pre-programmed. Are you actively looking at other behaviours or markets that you can apply either a new strategy to or this strategy to that, that may work as well. I've spent a long time trying to apply this strategy to other markets. So we've tried to apply this strategy, this behavioural bias to bond markets, uh, foreign exchange markets, commodity markets. Uh, we've tried to apply it to the US market, European markets and other markets. But what we've found is this behavioural bias, i.e. anchoring on the US's behaviour, is unique to Asia Pacific. Because when you think about it, the Americans don't anchor back to our market. No, they don't yeah. tend to turn on uh, Koshy exactly to right. wake out what's happened in Australia. He doesn't have that broad appeal. <laughs> as much as I'm a fan of his haircut, he doesn't have that broad appeal. The thing is, um, there are so many different behaviours out there and there's so many different patterns. So I always say, there's a thousand ways to make money in the market. Just pick one or two and stick to it. Where you fail is switching between strategies. So we've tried to apply this to a lot of different markets. It only works in Asia. Because people say to me, oh, you obviously like the Asian markets. I have absolutely no feeling. I, I feel the same way about markets as they feel about me. I have no feeling. It's just where this works. Uh, notwithstanding, because we're filling this fund so quickly, we'll close capacity very shortly. Uh, we're just, uh, next month, we're incubating a new fund. And it's a similar principle. We have an underlying equity portfolio and we have an overarching futures trading strategy. But what's different about this is this is a global strategy rather than an Asia-Pacific strategy. So the smart people out there would have picked up, well, how can it be a global strategy when you just said it doesn't work anywhere else? It's because we're using a different pattern recognition strategy. So this strategy that we're running the new funds uh, futures on is trend following. So instead of trading six Asian markets, we'll be trading 73 global markets across commodities, uh, soft commodities, hard commodities, FX, equities and rates. And how does that compare or contrast to something like a Winton or what the market would call uh, commoditized CTAs or yeah, it's, it's going to be as commoditized as the rest of them. Um, they all do the same thing as we will too. So when you think of a Winton Capital, Aspect Capital, AHL, notwithstanding, they all were born out of AHL, yes. maybe, maybe an AQR. They are, you know, this is bursting the bubble of, you know, these firms having 50 PhDs work, you know, working away on new strategies. They are actually all doing the same thing. The only difference that they have is they'll be, they'll be operating on different universes. So some may only use 30 contracts, some may use 130 contracts. Some may use, say, 20 basis points worth of risk per trade. Some, like Winton, may only use 
two basis points or four basis points worth of risk per trade. So it is the same trend following strategy because we know it works. Um, and it's yeah, we do exactly the same type of strategy. Uh, we run what's called a, what is called a, a medium term trend following strategy. So we wait to see these contracts, these futures contracts, hit 50 day highs or 50 day lows, and then we go with the trend. So if it hits a 50 day high, we buy it. If it hits a 50 day low, we sell it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very simple. And uh, it all comes back to, it's not so much the strategy, because you could run a strategy that's a 25 day trend following strategy or a 100 day trend following strategy. They all work. What it is is it's the, uh, the discipline to follow it day in and day out. So execution is very important. Mm -hmm. um, how is this a scenario where, you know, having a faster pipe being closer to the exchange, the grid, you know, you hear these stories, you watch these Netflix mm. things where they talk about people who dug through and built, you know, wires straight into the exchange so they were quicker or et cetera, moved next door to them so they could have, you know, a millisecond benefit. Does that affect your strategy? No, no. So that's your classic HF2 or high frequency trading. Yes. Um, that sort of hit its uh, critical mass when they started talking about um, doing the orders by microwave. Technology, so therefore you no longer even have the resistance of the the fiber optic cable, and that's when the exchanges went, okay, that's enough, fellas. We're just sticking to the fiber optic cable. That's the only advantage you're going to get, uh, because our average holding period is six weeks and four days in this strategy, about ten weeks for the winning trades of the underlying of, of our future strategy. Yep. Um, and I think about four weeks for a losing trade, uh, it doesn't really, we don't have this huge need to get it and out quickly. So we can take up to a week to get into a trade and out of a trade. So um, we, just run, we just write our own algorithms uh, to execute uh, our orders in the market and they go straight to market. So we don't even talk to a broker. Al, thanks for joining us inside the rope. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.